Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Megan Labrice, editor-at-large of Kirkus Reviews. Welcome to another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us today. My guest is Michelle Bodler, author of Is Rape a Crime? A Memoir, an Investigation, and a Manifesto. A book Kirkus calls, quote, an urgent, necessary, stark exploration of one of the most horrific violations that can happen to a human being. In 2007, Bodler came across a Boston Globe article exposing the fact of thousands upon thousands of unexamined rape kits in the possession of police departments across the country, some from violent crimes committed decades ago. And she didn't know whether hers was among them. As the book's subtitle suggests, there is a highly personal aspect to this book, which ultimately advocates passionately for action and legislation to ensure that the untested kits get tested, that future kits are tested, and that rape victims are treated with professionalism, compassion, and respect. This podcast is going to cover several important and challenging topics, from sexual assault to policing and the carceral system. It's also going to cover narrative nonfiction craft and writing communities, advocacy, and activism. Michelle Bowdler is the Executive Director of Health and Wellness Services at Tufts University. She's also an advocate with the Rape Kit Justice Project. Is Rape a Crime is her first book. She joins us now from Massachusetts. Welcome, Michelle, to Fully Booked. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. Okay, we're here discussing your debut book, Is Rape a Crime? Um, the first question I want to ask you is, how did this question become important to you? Well, this was actually a question that somebody asked me at an advocacy event that I was part of. And it became important to me because the more I wound up trying to understand how rape cases were handled um, nationally and internationally and be involved in uh, a movement that was looking at the basic non-investigation of, of rape as evidenced by these un untested and uninvestigated rape kits. We began, we all, all of us, I think many of us began to wonder if it could be considered a crime if it was ignored wholesale by law enforcement and as I say in my book, is there an equivalent felony for something that's both an international weapon of war and used for a sure laugh at a comedy club? And I feel like that, in my mind, has summed up how I've been looking at this issue for a number of years. Can it really be both? And are we taking it uh, with the seriousness that it deserves? Right. I mean, I take this title as an, an, an indictment, really, in suggesting that there could be any answer other than yes to is the question of the question, is rape a crime? Um, it's provocative to use the word rape in the title of a book. It's powerful to use the word rape in the title of a book. Why was it important to have it there? You know, I work at a university and oftentimes the term sexual misconduct is used mm -hmm. 
where sexual assault is used. And I think that there's this perception that rape is an ugly word and it's an ugly crime and it's something that can't really be spoken. And yet it's also something that um, is not addressed in a meaningful and serious way in society. And so it's, it's a contradiction. I thought about I thought about what it would mean to use it in the title and whether it would somehow scare people away. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I even had to wonder that made me realize even more that it was important that this is what the book is about. And the fact that it's unspeakable is part of what we have to look at. What happens today in the United States when someone reports a rape? Well, first of all, It's the most underreported felony. The data from the Rape and Incest National Network that people refer to as RAIN Mm -hmm. uh, uses uh, a bunch of federal data and combined, they say that about 230 out of 1,000 rapes are reported. When rape is reported, it is often addressed by law enforcement as, you know, people who are People who are taking that step are often traumatized, are often scared, are often intimidated, and they're also worried that nothing will happen. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, too often, when somebody goes in to report rape, they can be made to feel like what they're saying is is not convincing, sometimes still in in current times people can be asked questions that might indicate that their behavior is in question. Right. Sometimes cases are just dismissed outright. Sometimes people are told that, you know, they want to be sure about what they're saying because they don't want to be um, charged with making a false allegation. And, um, and sometimes people are treated just fine Mm -hmm. and then their file is put to the side and their rape evidence is never looked at again. And that sounds really shocking, and it sounds like something that couldn't possibly be true. But unfortunately, it is. How widespread is this? Well, it depends from city to city. Mm-hmm. What, what I can say is that there are, there's some data in, in the book that talks about how in some cities, up to a third to 50% of some, in some cities, Rape allegations are considered unfounded or they're dismissed outright. And that when, you know, probably 10 years ago, when people first started talking about, it was called untested rape kits, but untested Mm -hmm. rape kits represent cases that never were looked at or moved forward. And so those were in cities all over the country. And I think it's too widespread. Yeah. There are a lot of words that are important to this book. We've already begun discussing the word rape. There's also the word backlog shows up in quotation marks in this book. You don't (laughs) seem to be a fan. No, no. When people first in like 2007, 2008 were talking about a backlog of rape kits, Mm -hmm. the idea in using that word is that there was an intention to investigate these cases. There was an intention to test these rape kits. But unfortunately, the police just ran out of money, or I should say the the crime labs. And that really the problem was that we just needed more funding and um, we would test all these kits and the problem would be solved. But 
it's hard to understand when these kits were tested and some of the cases that uh, perpetrators were identified, you see that, and I talked specifically about um, some people who I later came to know uh, through, through some work that I was doing on this issue, that had the, had the, had the case been investigated, mm-hmm. had law enforcement looked into the allegations that the person who was in front of them had told them about and the rape evidence been um, tested, which is DNA evidence. They often find when they test these kids that serial perpetration could have been prevented. So calling it a backlog and saying that the problem will be solved by just giving more money to law enforcement that hasn't had to be held accountable as if these kids just got old on their own. Right. And they just got right. And that's the problem I have with it, mm-hmm. that they didn't just get old on their own. There was an intentional, you know, this case wouldn't be strong. It wouldn't be good in court. You know, they didn't see the persons, but they have DNA evidence. They could do something with that since that is such a high standard of being able to match somebody to uh, to a crime. And they just didn't. So I refer to it more as non-investigation. And, you know, even when the backlogs are addressed, you know, quote unquote, the backlogs are addressed, I don't necessarily feel confident that that was done for any other reason, that, you know, millions of dollars were poured into these police departments in order to get them tested. It doesn't mean that officers have any better sense of how to investigate rape, how to treat victims, and how to take current cases and treat them with seriousness. We don't want to have a quote-unquote another backlog in five or ten years with nothing having changed. Your book is divided into three major sections, uh, memoir, investigation, and manifesto. Let's jump right to manifesto first. Um, To whom is the manifesto addressed? So I just have to say that although Mm -hmm. uh, although we structured it in that way. In some ways, the entire book has aspects of a manifesto because there are things that are addressed that are so egregious that by the time one gets to the manifesto, hopefully there will be a sense that we have to have a sense of hope and we have to think about how things will change. So the manifesto is addressed to all of all readers who care about this issue, But in the end, I do specifically address um, survivors or victims of violent crimes. I felt like it was important for me because I know that when I wondered why I was still so impacted by this devastating violence so many years later, I had a sense for myself that somehow my response was about me. And as I learned more from other people who had also felt like their crimes had been ignored, that this feeling of self-blame and shame and disregard comes from what it is that we also experience from society at large and law enforcement and the judicial system in particular. So I wanted to talk to survivors about how we were all going to work together to demand change because this set of conditions is really uh, inexcusable and needs to needs to change. 
I did find it, uh, just per- speaking as one reader, I did find it to be a very hopeful book. It did give me hope, but it also gave me, I was really tossed on stormy seas here, I have to say. <laughs> it's a shocking book. It's a very upsetting book. And I don't feel, I'm, maybe I'm wrong, I don't feel like it's possible to read this book without getting upset and outraged by some of just the facts of the system. Yeah. And that outrage does spur one to want to do something about it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that I, I, I did feel like the facts are outrageous. The things that have been tolerated are so harmful. And yet I, I really do in my heart feel like an optimistic person and that I'm somebody who is full of um, joy in many ways because I have a wonderful family, you know, wonderful friends, and, and and a sense of meaning in my life. It wasn't my goal to torment readers. I, I wanted the book to be readable and that a sense of outrage could be balanced with a sense of hope. Because I think that's necessary for any, as a combination for any kind of social change. I think about the, the social activists that I think about and admire, and they all know exactly the things that are challenging about the things that they want to change in society. But they are often also people who full of the belief that change is possible, even if it takes a very long time. And that part of it is naming it. This is an action. This is a this is an issuance. This is an utterance. And it is your story told um, to listening ears. And in emphasizing the things that we collectively may be able to do to change the system, build it back up from the bottom up, I mean, that's essentially hopeful to me. Just, and just just knowing that there are people out there doing this work and that I'm talking with one right now, gives me hope. Thank you. That makes me feel that makes me feel great. Thank you. I wanted to ask you what's the memoir incubator? So in Boston, there mm-hmm. is the most incredible uh writing collective called Grub Street. Mm-hmm. And they're the folks who do the conference called the Muse in the Marketplace, which is considered um, like a signature national conference for writers. And the thing that's so great about Grub Street is that they really do reach out to non-traditional writers, people who don't necessarily have or, or either didn't choose to or couldn't or took another path and don't have an MFA, but love to write or want to learn about writing. And the memoir, there's, there's a memoir incubator and there's a novel incubator. And what it is, is that uh, there it's a program that's year long, it's highly intensive. It meets once a week for three or four hours in the evening with like incredible instructors. They've had three instructors and each one is, you know, brilliant. The The, the very first one was Alex Marzano Lesnovich. Mm, I'm a big fan of theirs. Oh my gosh, they're, they're amazing. Mm-hmm. And then next was Garrett Conley. And next, and now it's Alicia Abbott, who's the uh, author of Fairyland. And Garrett, I want to say, um, is the author of Boy Erased. And so we have the opportunity to work with, and it's a comp- you have, it's a competitive class. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's about nine writers, and you come in with a draft 
of a memoir and you spend a year learning about, um, you know, believe it or not, two years ago, I didn't know what a narrative arc was. I didn't, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't know the difference between author, narrator and character. It was wonderful. And uh, I I ended the class in 2017. And, you know, the other thing I, this might sound so silly, but it's the, it's the absolute truth. You know, Alex would say things like, so it's important that you know about things like residencies. And I, and I was like, what's that? And I, you know, <laughs> and, you know, you really have to submit and let me t- teach you about how to submit. And let's talk about the kinds of things you can apply for. As you must have seen in the book, I had hoped to be, have a career in writing. Yes. And everything I was before and all my hopes and dreams, you know, really disappeared. And and 25 years later, when I had started writing again, somebody said to me, have you heard of Grub Street? Have you heard of this memoir class? And I applied to the most competitive program, having really not written for, you know, except for in my work life, for probably 20 years. And I guess this book just really needed to come out of me because it all has just happened. You know, the class, the being in a few different residencies that were incredibly meaningful. I just, I feel so lucky and I I can't recommend uh, Grub Street's programs enough. We're we're very, very lucky in Boston. You're a natural. Um, (laughs) You're a natural writer. As I mentioned uh, before, we really got the tape rolling on this in our little pre-talk chat. I mentioned um, some of the, the detail, some of the wry observations here. And as we mentioned earlier in this conversation, like the book really, it's a, it's a, it's a balance of a lot of, you know, outrageous, hard to hear facts but it also is like compulsively readable. Like the detail you give, I mean, I'm right there in your friend's apartment staring at these flat headed detectives, you know, who have thumped down on the overstuffed, uh, you know, antique furniture, calling mm-hmm. for their coffee, scribbling with their pen on their little pads and ripping the sheets and being upset about it. You know, it's 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 a really strong scene. Thank you. Yeah, well done. Thank you. I will say it mm-hmm. was very important to me. What you're saying matters a lot because right. I needed it to be readable. And I also want to say that the decisions that I made about where I would be explicit and where I wouldn't right. were also so intentional because, and I hope I hope as a reader, you can confirm that mm even in describing pretty horrific violence, that it was not sensational, but it, it came across as, as necessary to really understand the impact. That was my goal. I can confirm that. Okay, thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear that because I felt like I needed to put in enough details so that people could truly understand the juxtaposition of what a victim experiences. And when you put it up against the disregard by law enforcement, it it even hopefully will move people to action um, largely for that reason, because it's, it's so dystonic. Yeah. Yeah. Victim is another word um, that really was highlighted for me throughout this book. Um, It seems that, you know, 
some people choose victim uh, to identify themselves. Some people choose survivor um, when when they've experienced this kind of violent crime. Um, for you, is victim the choice? Uh, you know, I've I would say that in all the in most of the book, I use the word victim. I, I, I do find there's a couple of survivors thrown in there a couple of times. Right. But, you know, I, I it's not that I judge other people for the choices they make, but mm-hmm. I do sometimes feel like in society, people use that word as a way to, I, I don't want to say minimize, It's it's more complicated than that. It's like everything's all better now. Right. Like you're a survivor. Good for you. You are you are brave. You have courage. You survived, which is very different than you are the victim of a violent crime. And and there's an impact of that. And there's a as this problem in our society when this crime and this act um, is is applied to um, to certain groups of people at higher rates than others. And we seem to be okay with that. And so that's part of why I prefer that word. And, and, and I do, I do feel like now that we're talking about that, I want to say that I hope I made it abundantly clear in the book that I am not uh, a pro carceral person. I didn't write this book so that people would take away from it that the way we make change is put more people in jail. That was never, ever, ever my intention or my mission. My, my goal was to hold police accountable for what crimes they choose to investigate and what crimes they don't and what people they think are more likely to be uh, people who perpetrated crimes and what people they seem to not care if they perpetrate certain crimes, depending on, um, you know, things that we all understand. What what kind of legislation do we need? What kind of legislation would help ensure um, rape victims are cared for and cared about by this system? Well, I would favor, you know, there is a lot of legislation that's come out of this quote-unquote rape kit backlog. And the kind mm-hmm. of legislation that you tend to see are things like, Um, expensive software that will help uh, victims and survivors track where their rape kit is in the system or legislation that says that all rape kits need to be tested by a certain time. But that, though, that legislation often has nuance, like, you know, all rape kits will be tested by a certain time, often comes with a caveat that will say, if the DA thinks that it needs to, uh, if the DA thinks it's eligible or the, you know, the prosecutors think it's eligible for testing, which is different than we're going to, we're going to investigate all rapes. And so I really favor at a minimum that training about sexual assault and training officers about sexual assault and also training them about understanding their own responses is actually a good place to start. In, in a lot of law enforcement, there are base, there's basic training that includes things like weapon, you know, how to use a weapon, you know, other things that are, they, they consider essential. But 
how to actually understand why it's important to address a felony crime with seriousness and not start by making somebody believe that they have to you know, reach a level, level of veracity that the officer decides needs to stop. And if even if we could just start with mandatory training of police officers on how to address rape and sexual assault and also how their own beliefs, behaviors, uh, attitudes, and, and so forth, and also their own, their own response to trauma. Uh, if they could understand that better, I think that would be a good start. Hmm. Well, I guess the last question is, what would be a good end? What <laughs> What else, if anything, would you like our listeners to know about this book? Well, I guess I still feel stunned at how common it still is. I mean, if you go online and you look up stupid things politicians said about rape, oh. I mean, the fact, and you'll get like, hundreds of hits and the quotes are are just unbelievable i guess i i have this lofty uh, goal which is that our society and our politicians and our uh, judicial system reflects uh, a larger uh, reflects our larger society and that we have representation that you know is is truly representation I think I talk about this, I talk a little bit about this just when we're, I'm talking about the Clarence Thomas hearings and sort mm-hmm. of what a, what a debacle that was. Yeah. And at the time, every single person on that, on that uh, I was going to say on that stage, because it felt like a stage, but on, right. that, uh, on that Senate was, it was a white man. And the way they treated her and the way they uh, addressed Anita Hill, um, you know, just showed us how... We have to have we have to have a, a, a more just society that doesn't put all the, the power and wealth into the hands of a few. It, 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 you know, and that and that when somebody who's been credibly accused of sexual assault by dozens of women simply needs to wave his hand and say that didn't happen. That you know, let's move on. It was locker room talk and can be awarded the highest uh, the highest position in our nation. Um, you know, that I, I think that's really problematic. But maybe problematic isn't strong enough. But I would like to see, I would like to see that, uh, I would like to see that change. Me too. I guess I feel like we all need to vote. Thank you. (laughs) Never again. Hopefully submitted. Yeah. Um, And there are things we can do in the meantime to support that change. And I, for one, um, feel called to do that after reading this book. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michelle, for joining me today on Fully Booked. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity, and I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. That was Michelle Bowdler, author of Is Rape a Crime? A Memoir, an Investigation, and a Manifesto, published today by Flatiron Books. I'm grateful to every listener every week, but especially this week for your openness to learning about this important, affecting, and provocative book— And just to follow up on the mention of RAIN, that's R-A-I-N-N, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, during the course of our conversation, if you want more information or are seeking support, 
Uh, they have extensive resources available at www.rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N.org. Or call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. After the break, we'll ask our editors for their top picks and books for the week. You're listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. We're joined now by our editors with their top picks in books this week. We have Young Readers editor Vicki Smith, nonfiction editor Eric Liebetrau, and fiction editor Lori Muchnick. Young Readers editor Laura Simeon is out of the office today. Vicki, you're up first. What's your pick? I have a fabulous little book called Monster and Boy by Hannah mm-hmm. Barnaby and illustrated by Anusha Syed. And this is one of that very, very special slice of the um, middle grade section that is directly aimed at kids who are moving from early readers like Henry and Mudge to full-length novels, chapter books, uh, as we call it in the biz. And Mm -hmm. really, there aren't that many published every year, and a lot of them are very formulaic, but the people who can get it right are just pearls. And Hannah Barnaby has got it right. She takes a trope that has been seen a lot in picture books, mostly, this trope in which the child meets the monster under the bed. Um, But she develops these two really, really darling characters, and it's all very, very sort of wryly funny. So what happens is the monster's been living under this boy's bed forever, and he is really a little bit taken aback when he hears the boy's mother read a story to him about a monster under the bed and then says, of course, that doesn't monsters don't really exist. And so the monster decides that he will finally introduce himself. And um, when he does, and in the illustrations, you see that the monster is not very scary, but he is extremely large, particularly in relation to the boy. And when the boy draws breath to scream, the monster stops it in the best and most efficient way possible, which is by swallowing the boy. And after considering keeping the boy there for a little while, the monster decides to um, return the boy to the world. But, but when he does, the boy is grasshopper-sized. And so then the monster and the boy have to figure out how to restore the boy to normalcy. But I just want to, as I love to do, want to read a little bit of the, um, read a little bit of it so you can get a sense of the writing. Yes. The the boy says that, you know, the boy is sort of marveling at what just happened. And the monster says, I've never swallowed anything. And the boy says, never? The monster shook his head. I've always just been under your bed. The boy was amazed. You've never had cookies or pizza or broccoli? No, the monster said sadly. That's a shame, said the boy. Then he got a strange look on his face. Alarmed, the monster asked, what's wrong? The boy looked up. A tiny, tiny tear rolled down his tiny cheek. Talking about food has made me really hungry, and I don't know if I'll ever get to eat those things again either. Maybe I'll have to live under the bed with you. This thought delighted the monster for exactly four seconds, and then it didn't. Do not worry, the monster told the boy. We will fix this. That sounds so great. I know that there are tons of um, picture books about monsters, but it just gave me a great flashback to one of my favorites, which is Leonardo, the Terrible Monster by Mo Willems. That was always one of my favorite 
read-alouds. That is so much fun. That double-page <laughs> spread where 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 Leonardo the I can't even remember the boy's name, um, but the main character just sort of unloads everything that's wrong in his life. Boy, that is such a fun yeah. read-aloud. Thank exactly. you, Lori. I love that one. <laughs> Vicky's pick for the week is called Monster and Boy. It's by Hannah Barnaby, illustrated by Anusha Syed. Thank you, Vicky, for that choice. Turning now to nonfiction, Eric, what have you chosen for us? The title is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. I'm mm. really happy to see this on the bestseller list. Uh, it's by Eddie S. Gloud Jr. And it's a study, it's a really kind of interesting mix of memoir, biography, lit crit, American history you know, all through the lens of Baldwin and his work. And I think if there's ever a time to, to go back to Baldwin, now is the time. Um, and I think he's, the author just does a really good job of showing what was so significant about him and showing how, you know, what he stood for and what he did has special relevance for us now. And he also talks a lot about how the kind of myth that surrounded Martin Luther King Jr. after his death and how his, you know, it's been kind of manipulated and, used to certain ends that he certainly would not have approved of. And so this book is just, it's perfect for right now. Um, and I think our reviewer said it really well. He says, Baldwin's genius glimmers throughout as Gloud effectively demonstrates how truth does not die with the one who spoke it. So really happy to see it on the bestseller list. Yeah, I, I, I have not read it, but I am also glad to know now that it exists. So thank you, Eric. You know, I'm one of those people, one of the many, many, too many people who came to Baldwin fairly late. I think I got to Baldwin through Between the World and Me. And, mm -hmm. um, and it is not shocking because, you know, American injustice shouldn't shock us anymore because we've been perpetrating it for so long. But, you know, how, how relevant this writing is is it makes you mad it, it does. Sure that James Baldwin would be mad too but but yeah. aren't we lucky to have him to you know kind of bash us around a bit and make us see yeah. what we need to see absolutely and I was also as I was reading through this there's a um I was reminded of this documentary that came out a few years ago called I am not your negro and it's narrated by Samuel L. Jackson based on um like an unfinished manuscript that Baldwin had written so anyone new to him, I think I would recommend that that film as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was just I second re watching that. that the other night. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Yeah. Eric's pick for the week is Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own by Eddie Gloud. Thank you for that pick. And finally, we have fiction. Lori, what's your choice this week? My choice is a romance called Daring and the Duke by Sarah McLean, one of my favorite writers. But in order to sell you this book, I kind of have to back up and tell you about this whole series. I just wrote a column for the magazine about how summer is a great time to read series that are already complete, you know, so you can kind of rush through the whole thing. And that is the case with this series. I think a lot of people don't even realize that romances are written in series, people who aren't regular romance readers. So this is the last of a three book series called The Bare Knuckle Bastards. Mm -hmm. And it all starts, I know you talked to Sarah about one of the earlier books, right? And I love her, big fan. Yeah. So the book starts with this evil, sadistic duke, of course, because there's always a duke called the Duke of Marwick. And all he cares about is having his line continue. He his wife, you know, the story's not about them. They're just like the background. So I don't know what the deal is, but he he doesn't have any children with his wife. And 
one day at the same hour on the same day, three different mistresses that he have, prostitute, fair, you know, seamstress, different people who he'd been sleeping with, they all have sons at the same time. And at home at the same time, his wife, who doesn't sleep with him, but had been having an affair, she has a child who the Duke is ready to proclaim as his own in order to continue his ducal line, but she turns out to be a girl. So she's useless. But in his, he comes up with this evil plot not to tell anyone that she's a girl. He has her christened with a boy's name and then hides her away for years. Then he finds these three, you know, out of wedlock sons that he's had from three different mothers, brings them back to his estate and basically makes them battle it out for who's going to take over the name of the Duke that, you know, has been kind of held as a placeholder by this girl who doesn't even have a name. So the three boys are sort of fighting it out. And meanwhile, one of the boys, Ewan, and the girl fall in love, but, and all four of them kind of become, you know, family. They're like siblings with this one couple, which may be a little weird, but they, they're not related. They fall in love. The boys bond then um, Ewan is a, you know, the, the Duke decides he wants Ewan to become the next Duke, but he tells him to do something terrible to the others because he can't have any, anyone knowing what's going on. So the other three run and they spend 20 years living in Covent Garden on their wits and their fists and clawing themselves out to become kind of the kings of the underworld in Covent Garden. And we've had um, a romance about each of the other two men who, um, you know, have a, they're smugglers, they're, you know, very uh, uh, just high ranking kind of mobsters with hearts of gold type of people. And now, but so all these years, Grace has been hiding away because She's afraid, and they've all been afraid that if Ewan, who's now the Duke, um, that he's scared of her, that the, the fact that she's alive could send him to the gallows for impersonating a Duke. So they think that her life is in jeopardy. So they've been hiding her away, and they told Ewan that um, she's dead. And he's been the villain of the last two books, trying to always get at the other two men. Um, so now in this book, we're introduced really to grace, although we've seen her before. And she is, of course, running a fabulous bordello in Covent Garden that's aimed at women, where women can come and get their own pleasure, which is rare at that time, the sort of very early Victorian era. Um, but she's always, you know, she's she's tried to tamp it down, but she really still loves Ewan. And this book, you know, McLean sets herself the task of taking the person who's been the villain for the last two books um, and redeeming him and showing what really happened back then and how he and Grace find their way back to each other. And it's really an impressive feat and just extremely uh, engaging and fast moving and, of course, super sexy and romantic. And, you know, reading all three books together just would make this one the capstone, but you can certainly read it alone if you want to. I do not know much about romance, but I actually learned quite a bit from a nonfiction book. It's called, oh. it's called the happily ever after a memoir of an unlikely romance novelist. 
And it's by Avi Steinberg, a journalist who gets into writing romances. And it's kind of a blend of memoir and critical essay. And I recommend it to anyone who doesn't understand. He kind of goes through everything. You know, there's certain checklists that that romances have to have. Uh, He talks a lot about, you know, those covers that are so, you know, fetching and Mm -hmm. ridiculous sometimes. And um, it's just a really funny look at... um, romance as a genre and all the different subgenres and everything that's involved in it. And it was really mm-hmm. eye-opening to me. I've been meaning to check that out. Yeah. I thought it was kind of funny that it was written by a man. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of curious about his perspective. Yeah. It's a really interesting perspective. Um, kind of unexpected, but yeah, recommended. Lori's recommended title is Daring and the Duke by Sarah McLean. Thank you, Lori, for that choice. Well, That does it for another episode of Fully Booked. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Please tune in again next week when my guest will be Melissa Falavino, author of Tomboyland, a collection of essays uh, that explore the Midwest, gender, family, guns. Um, In our review, Kirkus writes, quote, an expressive voice evolving deliberately, resisting having to be one thing or the other, end quote. I loved it, and I can't wait to discuss it with her then. But until that time... You know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes.